Good morning, good morning, good morning, everybody. Feel free to have a seat. Uh, my name is Josh. Uh, and first off, for those of you who know me, I'd just like to uh, address the proverbial elephant in the room. For those of you who know me, you might notice I'm slightly less of a man this morning than usual. Now, they say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Plus, I thought if you're not able to hear Scott preach, I might as well try and look like him. So now I just got to lose about 75 pounds and pump out three kids and we'll be set. Uh, but uh, actually, the real story is with my upcoming wedding, my beautiful fiance and I have been wondering what I would look like to exchange my thinning hairline for a buzz, so I decided to give her the freedom to chop it all off. Unfortunately, this was a result, uh, but it's nice. Now she can call me her baldy boy and I can call her my Delilah, which she doesn't care for. Uh, boldest stretch imaginable, negative uh, 20 degrees with a chrome dome, not the best idea. But at least now there's more oxygen reaching my head with all that pesky hair, so hopefully that'll put me in a better position for speaking today. Um, but overall, I went through, I cut my hair off uh, because I'm passionate about my wife-to-be. I'm passionate about our relationship, um, about our upcoming wedding. I want to see what looks best. And passion can lead us to make some pretty extreme and risky decisions, I found. I want you to, to think about a time in your life uh, when you were extremely passionate about a mission, about a vision, uh, there was a goal that you were extremely passionate about. And think about how it led you to act. For some people, it might be fitness. Some people can get so into just getting their bodies to look good. Uh, they can spend hours at the gym. They can, they can lose their mind and run marathons, which if you do that, that's great. I don't understand you. Uh, myself, one of the years in high school, I actually lost 60 pounds over the summer. I cut out a ton of my calories, I worked out a lot. Uh, I've managed to find them all uh, in the years since and they actually brought some friends. But still, uh, maybe you're passionate about football, another sport. I know some people in this part of the, the, the country seem to be passionate about football. Um, I am also a person like that. Um, just ask Scott. His family has actually videotaped me watching Seahawks games because apparently I'm a little intense and borderline frightening. But he's the one videotaping me, so who has the real problem, right? But people will wear and act a, like a crazy person rooting on their team because they have a passion to see them win. Probably one of the most common sources of passion that we can do is, is when we fall in love. We can, we can drive far longer, spend far more money than we should, stay up way too late, do irrational, illogical things in pursuit of the person who's captured our heart. Now, I've seen this in my own life, and it can be for better or for worse. And here at The Well, we want to be intentional, and we also want to be honest about our lives, about the good things and also about the things that we've been challenged in, and the things that we've struggled in. Um, so full disclosure, when I was in grad school, I pursued a girl. Thankfully, it did not work out. But in my zeal to form a relationship with her, I did some things that I eventually was pretty ashamed of. Probably one of the things that I most regret, and it's hard to even to talk about it now, was going to a Zumba class. Now, <clears throat> trust me, you don't want to see all this gyrating in a Latin-inspired dance aerobics class. I mean, these hips don't lie, but the truth isn't pretty, y'all. But the point is, when you get captured by a mission, a goal or an objective, when you're all in, it can lead you to some extreme and intense, sometimes seemingly foolish decisions. So the question becomes, are the passions you choose truly worth the effort, the time, the life that you pour into them? 
Now, we're currently looking at a book, Nehemiah, which is all about a man who himself was caught up in an intense passion, an intense mission. So before we jump in, let's, let's pray real quick. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is powerful on its own, God. I thank you that you can use a simpleton like me, God, to, to speak, and I just ask that you would do that today, God. If anything is from you, may you amplify it, God. If anything is not from you, God, stamp it out. We just ask that you would speak today and make your word understandable and relevant. Your name, amen. <clears throat> so like I said, we're in the, uh, the book of Nehemiah, and really it's not an especially well-known book of the Bible. It's kind of one of those flyover sections of the Old Testament. You know, we're going from like Genesis to Exodus, we know that, going over to Psalms. We kind of miss Nehemiah a lot of the times. Um, you can actually find it on page 221 of the church Bibles if you're looking for it. Um, now, if you're new with us today, you're not really used to this whole church thing, and you think, I've never even heard of Nehemiah. Well, it's a good week for you to be here, because to be honest, there's probably a lot of us who have grown up in the church who aren't super familiar with it either. Uh, to be honest, coming into this week, I didn't really know a lot about Nehemiah either. I knew he had something to do with building a wall and that he was the shortest man in the Bible. You know, Nehemiah. Yep, that's what I expected. Um, yeah, it's, I knew it was a groaner. Um, but while it may seem like a bit of an odd book to do a series on, it really does contain so much that's relevant to our lives today and to this church, this community, as we think about our mission as difference makers in our city. And it plays an important part in the overall story of the Bible. The Bible, though it's made up of so many different separate stories, there really is one major theme pushing the whole story forward. And that is the theme of the broken relationship that happened between God and man and God's consistent, uh, his consistent action and his relentless pursuit of restoring people back into a relationship with him. So before we jump into the text for today, a quick history lesson to figure out what's going on in Nehemiah. In Genesis, it talks about how God created man and there was a brokenness in the relationship because people turned away from him. And right after that, God started working to restore that relationship. He likes to use normal people, which is a good thing. So he chose this normal guy named Abram, Abraham. And he said, you know what? I want to form a relationship with you. We're going to have a covenant. Me and your, your offspring. And eventually, come uh, generation after generation, Abraham's offspring became Israel. It was God's chosen people. And the reason God chose them was because that was the people that he wanted to use, the vehicle through whom he wanted to bless the entire world and through, he, through whom he wanted to achieve this restoration of relationship with man. So God gave them the promised land, a home in Palestine, and in that, he gave them the capital city of Jerusalem where the temple was. The temple was where God said, I'll meet you here. This is where we'll commune. It was a very special place for the people. The problem with this, with this marriage between Israel and God was Israel was a pretty horrible bride. She would cheat on God all the time, uh, the people of Israel would worship other gods, and God, wanting to bring them, pull them back to himself, would allow them to experience discipline. And one of these disciplines was this huge nation of Babylon who came into Israel, destroyed the city, um, completely left the temple in ruins, and then took most of the people of Israel and shipped them off to a foreign country, to Babylonia. And the homeland of God's people was in ruins. And then, skip ahead 50 years this great Persian empire comes in and they take over the Babylonians. So now these Israelites are away from their home being controlled by these Persians, this Persian empire. But thankfully they're a little bit more tolerant than the Babylonians and they let some Israelites go home to Israel. So they go home, they rebuild the temple and that's where we're at right now in this story. We have this man named Nehemiah 
He's a Jewish man living in this town called Susa, which is one of the Persian capitals. He's working as the cupbearer to the king. His brothers visit visit from uh, uh, Jerusalem, and he learns that the city is in trouble. The walls are broken down. The gates have been burned. The people are are in disgrace. Nehemiah is heartbroken. He weeps. So why is this such a big deal? Well, first, Jerusalem was vulnerable to attack. Scott talked about this last week. I don't, anybody here like Westerns? I love Westerns. Maybe it's because my dad showed me too much bonanza growing up. But whenever I read the Old Testament, I think about it like the Wild West. You know, it's kind of lawless, kind of dirty. You never know what's going to happen. Well, for anybody who's watched uh, a Western, you know there's only a handful of, of like, topics really ever talked about that make up any Western. There's usually a gunslinger, a cattle drive, trouble with the natives, some evil railroad tycoon kicking us off our farm. And then sometimes there's a story of a town that's defenseless. It's ravaged by a band of ingrate reprobate ne'er-do-wells. Kind of like Magnificent Seven, if anyone's seen that movie. There we go. Or people with a less, lesser palate, Three Amigos. Anyone? Yeah, it's, I wouldn't recommend it. Well, I would, but we'll talk about it later. Um, but that's kind of what's happening here in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is surrounded by enemies who don't want to see them thrive. And really in that day, your town, your defense is only as good as the wall around you. So the wall is broken down. Nehemiah is concerned for the safety of the people and also the safety of the temple. But secondly, he's crushed because the people, the Jewish people, are showing apathy. They're having fear. They're not rebuilding the wall. They're not taking seriously God's call to be a a light, a blessing to the world. They're barely surviving. And that's not a great position to be in to make an impact on the world for God. That's exactly why they were his chosen people. So chapter 1, Nehemiah humbles himself. He gets in line with God's heart to go and rebuild the city, help them be a light to the nation again. And he asks God to give him favor before the king. And the reason this story is so important to us is because like Nehemiah, we have been called to a mission here in Nashua. We have been called to reach out in love to our neighbors, share the message of Jesus, that God loves each person deeply, and he wants them to come back into relationship with him. He wants to free them to a full, fulfilling life. Individually, we share the same goal in the places we work and play and everywhere in between. So we're going to look here and see what it looks like to take a goal and to see it fulfilled. What does it take from us? How does God lead us into that? So let's read uh, Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 9. Again, that's page 221 in uh, the Pew Bibles. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, When wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight... Let him send me to the city of Judah, in Judah, where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple." And for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. 
So I went to the governor of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letter. The king had also sent army officials and cavalry with me. So as we said before, Nehemiah is this cupbearer to the king. It's a role of danger, but also quite a bit of influence. So uh, the cupbearer in those days would taste the wine before given to the king to make sure it wasn't poisonous, which is not exactly a perk to the job. But also, it was likely that he was also the chief financial officer for the king. Many times the cupbearer had that role. So he would uh, bear the signet ring of the king, which is basically a seal that was the signature for the king. And he, and he basically had a lot of responsibility and a lot of access to the king. And it's interesting, first off, Nehemiah, we see that he made the most of his position and his opportunities. It's no accident that God had placed Nehemiah in this high position in the king's court and then placed on his heart a mission that would require access to the king. See, God was working behind the scenes the whole time, designing the opportunity and then providing exactly what Nehemiah needed to get the ball rolling. All Nehemiah had to do was be faithful with what he had and the opportunity that God set before him. Now, us today in this room, we might not be in, in positions of national influence. I don't think any of us are working alongside the president. Some of you might be very glad for that. Uh, but, we, but if you're like me, we have a tendency to minimize the influence that we have and devalue the place where God has placed us. I mean, you say, well, how am I going to reach this city for Jesus? I just work in an office. I just make minimum wage at a nine-to-five job. I just sit at a computer checking prescriptions eight hours a day. I'm nothing special. But when you're captured by the calling of God to bring love to people, you realize he has placed you in that position for a reason. And he will provide opportunities for you to make a difference in the lives around you and everything you need to accomplish those, those opportunities. Really for us, it's just up to us to hand over those positions to him, be faithful in the small things, and ask him to open our eyes to the opportunities as they show up. I'm not always very good at that. It takes new eyes for him to give us. So Nehemiah here, he's performing his duties. When the king notices that he seems sad, he reads it on his face. Now, when we read chapter 1 and go to chapter 2, we, we get the feeling, or it seems, that this happens directly after Nehemiah gets this passion from God. He gets this, this goal. He prays to the Lord, give me favor in the eyes of the king. And then, boom, the next day, the king asks, why are you looking so sad? And if you look at cues in the text, this actually happens four months later, a third of the year most likely. That's a significant amount of time for Nehemiah to wait on God to provide an answer to his prayer. Now, I'm not the most patient person. Maybe you guys uh, are the same. I might have been tempted to think, well, nothing's really happened. It's been, half, it's been a third of the year. Maybe, maybe I heard wrong. Maybe it was a fluke. Uh, maybe God's not really calling me to this. Or more likely, I would have tried to just move ahead with things on my own terms. But God shows us here that, that Nehemiah was displaying a persistent and prayerful patience waiting on God's timing. Let's be honest. There's going to be seasons in our life individually or as a church where we don't see sweeping changes in this city or in this neighborhood that we're hoping for. We maybe have people in our lives that we're praying for. We know they need a touch from God. They need Jesus in their lives. We pray for years and nothing seems to change. Maybe at our workplace, we keep asking for opportunities to tell people about our faith, and it never happens. We're tempted to lose hope and get frustrated. But we learn from Nehemiah to trust God in the waiting, to keep praying, to not lose heart, 
In verse 1, 4 of Nehemiah, it said that, that he prayed, he mourned, and he fasted for some time. And we get the sense that these patterns extended all the way up to the time Nehemiah spoke with the king. It reminds me of the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. He says here, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And that verse, if you look in the original writing, it has this sense of ask and keep asking. Knock and keep knocking. Seek and keep seeking. Jesus there is giving us a lesson, the importance of persistence in our prayers. God's timing is likely very different than our own. But in the waiting, in the seeking, there's a purpose. God has a way of changing us in that process. Growing our relationship with and our dependence on him. Many of you guys know my mom uh, was diagnosed with end-stage liver disease uh, a number of years ago. And we waited seven years for a transplant. And praise God, she got one just this last year. But in those moments, in that time of waiting, we grew so much more dependent on God. Our prayer life reached new heights. And the truth is, in this story in Nehemiah, God's not just interested in building a wall. He's also building a man. And in the time that we wait, that's when he can do that work in us to make us seek him more. It's not an easy thing, but he has his reasons. So here, Nehemiah is serving at what likely is a festival, and, and uh, he's giving wine to the king, and Artaxerxes notices his downcast face, which you might be surprised is pretty perceptive for a man, uh, but he asks him why. A little dig at my own gender. Uh, and with that question, Nehemiah notes that he is very much afraid, which is the sense that he's terrified that the king notices now, it's an extreme statement, and uh, the truth is Nehemiah is in a very dangerous situation here, potentially. It might not make immediate sense uh, to us why, but we've all been there. We've all been upset. We've been having a rough week, and really, as try as we may, we can't help but show it. However, if we bring that sort of thing to work, we're most likely only to get somebody saying, having a case of the Mondays, which would be annoying, but not going to put us in any you know, extreme danger. But in Nehemiah's day, the Persian kings were known for great self-indulgence. They surrounded themselves with comfort, extravagance, opulence, and they expected a cheerful disposition from their servants. One commentary said, Persian monarchs would not endure any independence of conduct in their presence. Everyone was expected to reflect the sunlight of the king's majesty. Prima donna much? You know, in my mind, I'm, I see the king being like, I so cannot take your negative energy right now. <laughs> Probably not accurate. But the very act of being downcast, let alone imposing grief on the king, could result in the loss of a servant's job or even their life. Nehemiah could be put to death for this behavior. One second. Ah, much better. But as bad as that was, the plot thickens a little bit more. See, years before, there had been a previous attempt to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And at that time, a report had been sent to Artaxerxes saying this, the king should know that the people who came to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're restoring the walls and repairing the foundation. You will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. That is why the city was destroyed. We informed the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. So the king gets this message years before, and he, he replies, saying, A search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt. 
Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. So the king himself, whom Nehemiah is serving, had ordered that the wall not be rebuilt just a few years earlier because he considered Jerusalem to be a rebellious city. And Nehemiah was about to request something that directly opposed his prior decree. It's a huge and dangerous request. He's kind of in double jeopardy in this situation. And it'd be way easy to say, no, king, it's all good. I'm I'm doing fine. But instead, in verse 3, Nehemiah says this. May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? We see here that Nehemiah is willing to take bold, risky chances for the purposes of God. He answers with boldness and also wisdom. He, you notice he doesn't mention the name of Jerusalem. It might have been a trigger for the king. But he is so dedicated to the calling God has placed on his life, he's willing to literally risk it all, including his life itself, to pursue it. Shows incredible boldness and courage to lay it all on the line for the sake of God's mission. You know, I, I read this story, and personally, I'm convicted to the core. Because I realize that in my life, I can be a real wimp for God. I mean, I struggle with fear of man. I struggle with fear of failure, fear of not saying the right thing, expressing God's message in a confusing way. But in this example that we see when faced with an opportunity to step into God's calling for our lives, fear may be present, but it isn't the end of the story. The truth is there has to be a love that's stronger than our fear. And we are told everywhere in the Bible that perfect love casts out all fear. Nehemiah made this big risk because God's call was more important than any other consideration. And we have been called to share the message of Jesus, to share love like he did. Often when we think about it, we kind of get the Sunday school idea of it, that it's going to be easy, it's all joy and happiness. People will love us when we love them like Jesus. It's going to be simple. And there will be joy when we share the love of Jesus like he did. But let's be completely honest. To love and to live like Jesus did is very costly. We have to take sacrifices. We have to be willing to to be broken of pride. We have to be willing to become uncomfortable and misunderstood. And I love to be comfortable. I love to be understood and liked. But at the end of the day, we have to ask the question... Is the mission worth the cost? It's a question each of us has to answer individually. I believe it is. So how did Nehemiah get to the point where he could overcome the fear in him? I think it flowed from that persistent prayer, the seeking of the Lord he did for the prior four months. God was working on him to prepare him for that moment at that time so that even though he was afraid for his life, he was willing to risk it. And I think for us, the time that we spend in the word of God, the time that we spend praying, it might be preparing us for a situation that we don't even foresee right now. Preparing us for a situation months, years down the road, out of the blue. A deepening relationship with Jesus is where we find the ability to be bold for him. God tells us in 1 Timothy 1.7, the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So Nehemiah here goes out on a limb, and instead of wrath, the king responds with graciousness and curiosity. Now, Scott 
mentioned last week that when we're seeking to join God in his mission for the world, when we come in line with what he's called us to, why not ask for big requests? Why not pray big prayers? And that's what Nehemiah does right here. He asks for a very big request from the king. He not only asks that he can leave, leave his duties, and go rebuild the city that the king originally said he didn't want rebuilt. He also asked for letters of safe passage because he knew there would be resistance. He also asked for building supplies from the royal stash for a citadel, like a fortress in Jerusalem, the wall, and his own house. It's a big request, but he asked it in line with the mission God set before him. He asked it in agreement with God's purpose for his chosen people. And God worked in the heart of an unbelieving king to reverse his original decree and provide all those needs to Nehemiah, including he even sent army officers and cavalry with him to protect him. And basically, Nehemiah became the governor of Judah. And so this story goes to show, yes, that God will pave the way and provide what we need to accomplish his task, the ones that he places on our hearts. He does answer prayer in his timing, but there's something else that I think it shows us. Did you notice that when Nehemiah was asked by the king for details of what he wanted to do, how long it would take, what he would need to get it done, he wasn't caught off guard. He wasn't bumbling for details. He didn't say, oh, uh, let me get back to you on that. He was prepared. Which shows me that in the months preceding this moment, as he was praying, as he was fasting and mourning and waiting, he was also planning for the time when, not if, God would answer his prayers and provide the opportunity he was asking for. Nehemiah prayed with an expectation that God would show up, an expectation that he would provide and make a way. There was a trust of God that he held on to, a trust so great that he made plans for the moment God would move, even when it was just a hope. It was that much of a sure thing for him. And again, I was convicted reading this story because, to be honest, there are a lot of times when I'll pray for a situation or for a person And sometimes it's almost like I just do it out of a duty or out of a habit because it's something that I feel like I'm supposed to do. And sometimes I stop and ask myself, do I even believe that God can work in this situation? Do I even believe that he will answer? Where's my faith at? Do I expect an answer or do I just pray because that's my my duty as a Christian? Now, of course, God answers uh, may be different than what I would expect or want. But at the end of the day, God tells those who trust in Jesus this truth, this promise in 1 John. He says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. And that's true. If I believe that that's really true, that I I know that in my life, I need to first make sure I'm persistently seeking after Jesus more deeply so that I can recognize his will. And at that point, I need to stop praying wimpy prayers. Start praying with a heart that expects God to answer, expects God to act, because he's promised that he will when we ask in his name, in his will. For all of those uh, here who call the well home or all those who call Jesus their Lord, It would just remind us that we haven't simply been called to believe in Jesus to get a get-out-of-hell-free card. There's a much greater life-giving mission that we've been invited into. 
So many of you in the family here have shown that you are all in in that mission, and it's a beautiful thing. So as we move into this new year to be difference makers for Jesus in this city, let's make the most of those opportunities in front of us. Let's take risky, bold moves for the sake of loving others like Jesus. Let's, in our times of waiting, pray with an expectation that God is going to show up, that he is going to answer. Now, for those of you who might be a little bit newer to the well, maybe you're just kicking the tires on this whole faith thing. I mentioned that the story of Nehemiah is part of a bigger story of the Bible. The relentless love story of a God who wants to reestablish his relationship with man. I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert. Jerusalem was rebuilt. And this was actually the site where eventually the pinnacle event took place that allows us to have a restored and life-giving relationship with God. And it came through a person, a man who is also fully God, who came out of this nation of Israel, named Jesus. Now, I don't know what your church background is or how that's kind of colored the way that you view God. But maybe you view him a lot like one of those old, opulent Persian kings. He's distant, he's disconnected, he's unable to be approached unless you're all good, you're happy, you have it all together. And if you show anything other than that, you feel like he's just ready to punish you. Get out of my sight. But that's not who God has shown himself to be. He knows that we're all messed up. He knows that we're all broken, that we're all in pain, that we're all incomplete. He longs for us to come to, a, to him in that brokenness. He longs for that so much that he actually first came to us. And that's why we celebrate Jesus here. Because God sent him into our messed up world to live a perfect life and then to die like a criminal in Jerusalem. And that doesn't make any sense because the Bible says itself that death is a result, a payment, for living in a manner opposed to God, which we call sin. But Jesus had no sin, and he died, and he faced separation from God in the grave, and then defeated death by raising from the dead. Why? He did that so that he could pay the debt that we owed for our sinfulness, for our rebellion against God. And when we accept that, if we hand our lives over to him, we never have to be separated from God anymore. And he gives us the life that is truly life. You know, this whole book, like I said, is all about God's great mission in the world. That's a mission for you, for your heart, to bring you back into relationship with him. Today could be that day that you trade your brokenness for his life. Let's pray together. Father God, um, Lord, we are so thankful for, for who you are, God. We're thankful, Lord, that you choose to use ordinary people to accomplish your mission in this world, God. Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough that you came when we had nothing to give. You met us in our brokenness, God, and you paid every debt we would ever need to pay. And you call us, Lord, to be your children. God, I ask that, Lord, you would give us a heart for this city, for this world, God. That you would give us your eyes to see people the way you see them, Jesus. As we go into this week, God, you would give us a new boldness for you and your mission, Lord, in this world. We love you. In your name, amen. 
And we talked about um, the work that Jesus did on the cross. And uh, when he died, um, his blood was spilt. And his body was broken as he, as he died to make a way for us. And a few days before that happened, Jesus met with, the, with his followers, with his disciples. And he, he broke bread and had wine with him. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And we do it not because we believe it gives us anything extra or that it makes us right before God. We do it because it reminds us the sacrifice he gave for us, that he gave us his all. So if you're here and you have a relationship with Jesus, we invite you as the band starts to play that you come and you take and you remember how much our God loves you by giving his all, giving his son to die in your place. If you don't know Jesus, if you're still trying to figure it all out and you just, you're interested, feel free to just stay in your seat. But as you do that, I just ask you to reflect on what it means to be loved so much to be died for. And realize that God is not looking for you to make your life perfect before you come to him. He wants you the way you are. He's not going to keep you there, but you don't have to do anything to come to him. So we invite you who, who know Jesus to feel free to stand and, and from the back coming forward, just come and, and take. And then we're going to worship with one more song together.